Ashley Ray is the founder of Mala Collective. She is a formal former journalist who now owns Mala Collective, which was created to inspire people to connect themselves through meditation. She started and scaled a business to seven figures. She lives a life with aligned goals and values. And most importantly, she inspires other people to do the same. I am obsessed with Mala Collective. I've had the meditation cushion sets and the beads for years. And I love anything that you're selling to incentivize myself and other people to get to a meditation practice. Cause I know there are definitely days that I resist it. Um, was that your intention? Oh, was that my intention? I mean, <laughs> thank you. That's a beautiful introduction. Mala Collective was started very much by accident. I would say that's okay. very much my intention now, but most people assume I started a business in meditation because I meditated, but I didn't. I had never <laughs> meditated before. And the business started very much by accident. And I, I can, I'll share the, the brief synopsis, but you mentioned I was a journalist. I yeah. used to cover murder trials. So covering murder is very, very different than working in meditation. And I'm from Canada, from Vancouver. I won a national award, quit journalism, went to Bali. I think a lot of people end up in Bali on their soul searching journey. It's Fell true. in love with Mala's meditation. It's such a supportive island. Mm -hmm. Fell in love with meditation there, bought a whole bunch of Mala's and because they were beautiful. I didn't realize the function and how they help focus your attention and energy in meditation. And I was flying from Bali to Thailand with my partner at the time. And this lady came up to us on the plane and said, I love your aura. Can I sit and talk to you? And she happened to be the woman that made the mala beads that we had bought. Oh, so wow. that's how the business started was just a very serendipitous interaction on an airplane. And that was 12 years ago now. So the intention at the time was, whoa, we met a really cool hippie on a plane. We should help her fulfill her journey and her destiny. And by no means did we ever expect it to become a business. Uh, and I wow. didn't, I mean, I didn't know one person that was an entrepreneur at the time. I didn't know what that word meant. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was a completely foreign uh, journey to dive into. So we're, and I read this and I got really excited when I read it, we're obsessed with, with true crime. Maybe you are still, or you aren't, <laughs> I don't know, but uh, before we go into, you before know, we go into the meditation, before we go so. into the meditation and, and mall side of the the uh, conversation. Tell, tell us about that. You have to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've actually never watched um, a Netflix documentary or listened to a podcast on it okay. after leaving. Um, and I think it's okay. because I, I was not a good person to be around. I was so desensitized to yeah. human nature because I was seeing so much yeah. Yeah. rawness and it was so overwhelming I was a terrible person to have at a dinner party. I would only talk about murder. And I guess if you like murder, maybe that's, I'd be a great dinner guest, but it was, it was all encompassing. And I think, I think I want to say I like murder. <laughs> I, I mean, I would, you're right. That's not yeah. the right way to frame it, but I understand people's obsession with it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think yeah. okay, to see so, the extremes yeah. of how people live is wild. It's wild yeah. and it yeah. is obsessive. So I understand why people are hooked into it. I was yeah. definitely one of those people. Did it, did it cause, you know, mental angst, anxiety? Did it, you know, seeing human nature in that form, did that cause? Or was it like a you? stressful job in the sense of like, you were super busy all the time? Is that like, is there a reason that you like were, or were you intentional about leaving it? I, those are all really good questions. It's so, you know, when there's something so long ago, it feels like it, it's not even me. It's, it was 12 years yeah, ago, but it's so yeah, long ago that, yeah. that I think part of it, part, of course it was stressful, but I think a lot of those skills have transferred into entrepreneurship of deadlines sure. and hustle and yeah. movement. But I think that part of my life, I remember being asked to stay and write a book. And this is right after we started Mala. And I realized I don't want my life to be obsessed with that anymore. If I could choose a path, I don't want my life to focus on that negative energy. And I, yeah. I think maybe one of the most profound moments was sitting and watching someone receive a life sentence that was the same age as me and thinking, mm -hmm. this is this, this boy. I mean, I was in my twenties, I guess we're, we're pretty like we're kids in our twenties that mm -hmm. he's about to have his life dictated. And it was just, it was so profoundly overwhelming um, and in every sense, it was amazing and um, horrifying and 
full of awe and wonder of what humans are capable of in the most horrifying ways and just not really what I want my life to focus on. And I don't think there could have been more of a 180 to go into meditation. And again, without intention of going into meditation, like it sounds like a pretty beautifully planned out from murder to meditation. Like, oh yeah, of course that makes sense. But very serendipitously uh, is even more wild to me when I speak it out loud. Yeah. Yeah. You would think like, all right, she was around the most grotesque, you know, displays of of human nature and that may have caused stress and anxiety and all the things. And so you were looking for tools and you found meditation and that became your career, (laughs) but, but maybe. Yeah. yeah. So that was what kind of be like kind of my next question. It was like, so first tell us a little bit about how you got into journalism. And then from that place, it's like, what was the transition to mindfulness? Like, like were your parents at all, like proponents of mindfulness when you were growing up? What was your upbringing? Like, like, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think those are really good questions. I I always reflected, you know, when I started the business, I had huge imposter syndrome thinking like, who am I to start this? I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know anything about meditation. And I would say that the skills from journalism of being really curious when I was a kid, I was really nosy and, you know, we always ask why, 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 and I never stopped. And I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to know everything. And I was curious about how everyone lived, what their human experience was like. I think that in the beginning of the business, I didn't know anything about meditation. I mean, 12 years ago, it wasn't talked about the way it's talked about now. It's talked about so openly. And 12 years ago, I felt so ashamed and so embarrassed I have to sit there for 30 minutes with no thoughts. Like I'll never get this right. I could never do this. I pictured this old man with a beard sitting on a cushion with <laughs> incense. I'm like, I can't do that. I want to do that. So mm-hmm. I would say that the, the journalistic curiosity helped the business. I think that's actually that skill and curiosity mm-hmm. is a core value for me. So being able to be curious, I always joked, I got paid to be nosy. Like how wonderful, how wonderful yeah. is that? And now I get paid to be, curious and explore and play and learn about meditation. And when I land in a new country, because I travel a lot, my goal is to find the weirdest, wildest, most different form of meditation that I can take to help Mm. remind me like there's no right way to meditate. There's no one way to meditate. There's so many versions. There's so many experiences that you can have. How can I synthesize that and translate it in a way that allows someone to feel awe or curiosity or excitement or safety? Not that by any means I am the medium of the meditation, but to allow someone to experience it that maybe they wouldn't have found it otherwise. Yeah, that's. I think that's all so fascinating. And that transition must have felt like so liberating to you. Like, like again, like carrying this heavy weight around and then now you're like, oh, but like I go, I get to take my curiosity and like make it playful now. And that's again, like such a lighter feeling. Can you tell us a little bit about, like you said, when you first started it, you weren't even meditating. So how did you get into the actual practice? Yeah. I mean, your comment of it must've felt so much lighter, like, no, it didn't. I didn't know how to run a business. (laughs) I was so (laughs) scared all the time. I like, I remember I'd stay up crying most nights and be like, I don't know what I'm doing and people are going to find out. I'm such an imposter. I'm such a Mm -hmm. phony. People are sending us these messages because malas, if you don't know what a mala is, it's a string of beads, much like a rosary that you turn through your fingers and you inhale and exhale on every bead. And it signifies a full meditation and it's rooted in Buddhism and Hinduism. So this string of beads represents so much to people. When we get these emails saying this mala helped me through divorce, helped me through abuse. It helped me coming out to my parents. It helped me, you know, all of these beautiful right. transitions and journeys I'd be sitting there, you know, 24 years old and thinking, oh my God, they think that I have all these answers and they don't know that I don't know. So it was actually, the practice helped me so much that we're all seeking. And when I reflect now, I held space as best as I could. And I never pretended to be anything I wasn't, but my meditation practice really started out of the curiosity And then maybe a little bit of shame of like, I should know how to do this, or I need to know how to do this. And I think that in my experience, you know, you referenced earlier having a meditation cushion, people have joked like, yeah, I bought a meditation cushion from you so I could have it out in my living room and maybe it would spark a bit of shame or guilt. But then there's a day where you get pulled to it and you actually want it. And there's 
there's a fine line of what day when that happens that we we know we need to we know we should those are the two things i always get when i tell people what i do and need and should are so rooted in shame that there's days where oh my gosh i can't wait to sit i can't wait to be alone with yeah. myself and just sit with my thoughts and it's it's so different and not every day i i you know i've been doing this for 12 years there's days where i feel like i need to or i should still but that's how that was my meditation during the beginning so it wasn't this beautiful enlightened glorious experience where i'm like wow i've discovered this thing it was it was rooted in a lot of shame and guilt and and not understanding something and the more i traveled and the more i you know took trainings and experiences from as many people as i could find and read about it i realized oh there isn't just one way to meditate there's so many ways to connect to ourselves so when i think about you know why I meditate it's to you know meet myself to come back to myself and there's so many entry points to that that's what I'm really curious about is it's like offering a buffet of all these different forms and which mm -hmm. one resonates with you can you so I, I love what you just said because we were literally talking about this it, it was yeah, not a meditation really. person but we had another podcast interview and she was telling us about how meditation is an important part of her day um and she was like explaining to somebody who was kind of giving her grief about meditation that, you know, walking your dog for you is a form of meditation because you're alone, you're with mm -hmm. your pets, you're in nature there. You don't have a phone, like all of these things. And so for somebody listening, who is trying to explore this, because I, I resonated so much with what you said about, you know, at first I didn't, I, I just felt like it was something I should do, or like I had to do, um, or like my, uh, eating disorder therapist was telling me to do, but now it's like, I am so much more connected to myself and so much more in tune with my own goals, my own dreams, like my own needs. And so it's, I, I look forward to it a lot of the days. Again, I somehow taste that like I'm not, um, but I, I think that it's important for people to know that that comes on the other side. Once you get a taste of like, oh, that's, that's what it feels like. And so give people some information on like, what are like the different types or forms that they could try? Yeah, I love that. And I'll, I'll plant the seed that I want to talk about the ROI of meditation because yes. I started working with a lot of athletes and C-suite and high performers. And that's always the question is when does the return on my investment kick in? <laughs> it's not always, it's not always like, you, you know, you go to the gym once you don't have abs, you sit three times and meditate. You're like, why isn't this working yet? Why hasn't the thing happened? So, you know, in my experience, what I always share with beginners is, you know, tie it to a habit you've already built. So in the mornings, if you have a French press, I have a French press in Vancouver. I turn on the kettle for my coffee and I sit and meditate. So that habit triggers my meditation. I think yeah. a big block for humans is starting a new habit. So how yeah. can you tie it to something that you already do? Uh, next is just start really small. For some reason, we have this idea that it has to be like 20 or 30 minutes. You can sit for three minutes. You can sit for six minutes. It doesn't have to be this huge production. And then the last one I would say is if you miss a day, just miss a day. <laughs> like it's, you're not, you're not a bad person for missing a day. And we do a lot of free meditation series, like 20 day meditation series or 30 days. And if people fall off, they just don't come back and they get in their head around, you know, I've missed a day. I could never, I could never go back now, but you would never tell your friend, like you missed a day at the gym. Like you're, you shouldn't go back. That's really embarrassing for you, but we're so mean to ourselves yeah. that when we fall off of something, we just don't return. And I feel like really that's what meditation book. helps oh. with too, is like this like inner critic voice. It's like, it, it gives yeah. you the ability to offer yourself a little more compassion when things like that come up versus that inner mean girl that is like so profound and, yeah. and guy in all of us. It's a really good book. It's yeah. gotten pretty popular, but it's called Atomic Habits because habit forming is really hard and it offers yeah. some really incredible tools. Uh, on how to form them. And like you said, starting small is, is one of those pieces, but it also has a good argument for like accountability. So you like, I'm going to tell you like, Hey, I'm going to start meditating for 10 minutes yes. every morning, you know, not make sure I do it, but you know, I want you to be aware of this and I want you to try to hold me accountable for it. Well, that's what I say to even some of my clients when I'm working with them is like the idea of 
if you tell your husband or your partner, somebody who's with you every single day, you are so much more accountable than just telling me who you only see every two weeks. Um, And so I love, I love that too. So do you meditate? Tell us about tactically how you do it. Like your practice. You know, we throw it around a lot. There's so many different versions. Yeah. No, I get it. I mean, I travel a lot. Like I, I think that routine is this beautiful thing I wish that I had, mm. uh, but I'm in New York right now in my apartment here and I have a cushion. I sit, yeah. I do a gratitude practice. I sit and meditate. Oftentimes my mala beads or sometimes I'll just sit in silence. Do you listen um, to something or, or, or is it just in your own head? Yeah. So I, I really love insight timer. You can just press timer and there's this Tibetan bells that go and it's just so beautiful. And you just listen to the, the gong and the monks chanting. It's just so, it's just peaceful. And it's a timer and it's, I usually be like 20 minutes mm-hmm. or if I feel like eight minutes, I don't know why it's either eight or 20. I kind of toggle between. Mm-hmm. I always wear my mala and I'll often meditate with it. I always meditate on airplanes with my mala. I also wear stacks of bracelets on airplanes because I always sit beside nervous flyers and it's a really nice thing to give to the person beside me. But I really love in the spring and the summer walking meditations. I feel like there's something Mm. really beautiful about like the somatic movement and listening to a guided meditation and integrating it as you're moving in Manhattan. I go the exact same street every day. So it's not like I'm watching traffic or, you know, I have to really watch where I'm going in Vancouver, you know, like, you know, I'm by coastal. I have the same path that I take. So I don't have to be super, um, on alert, wondering where I'm going yeah. or, you know, I, I like going to, into nature and that yeah. doesn't really exist for me in New York, but in Vancouver it does. And so I would say the fall winter, I'm more inclined to be with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and start my day. Um, but there's moments where I just like really crave aloneness and I'll do an evening meditation, but my practice is more first thing in the morning. Love it. I'm just a much once- nicer person in the day. <laughs> yeah. Just once a day normally yes yeah usually in the mornings yeah and i also i tie it to a gratitude practice so i do a a page of gratitude journal as well yeah that's a good one i love that just you know for for someone who doesn't know a lot about malas so you said there's the you know physical connectivity of the beads running through your fingers as you breathe is there any other um not advantages it's the wrong way to put it but is there any other properties that you know, are especially mm-hmm. important in, in this practice. Yeah. What they're made yeah. of, so, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. So our malas are all made with different crystals and gemstones. Mm-hmm. So, and it depends, you know, you get out of what you put into it. I think if you believe in that, then beautiful, you're meditating on an intention that you've set. So mm-hmm. mine today is patience. And so mm-hmm. I have highlight and I wear it all day. And people would say to us like, does the halite really make you patient? Mm-hmm. Or when I look at it is if I have halite on my wrist and it reminds me of my intention to be patient, yeah. maybe I start becoming more patient because I'm thinking about it more. So yeah. we use real gemstones. It's all natural materials. They're not dyed. And I think that's really special. Actually, I'll backtrack. You don't need anything to meditate. You do not need a cushion. You do not need a mala. You can yeah. just sit wherever you are in this moment to meditate. Just like you don't need a beautiful new workout set to work out, but I feel more inclined to go do it when I feel good about myself or whatever yeah. whatever motivates you. Yeah. But what what I what I've experienced with our malas is to have a physical reminder of an intention is really beautiful, and to be able to wear it through the day. And what I was sharing earlier, when people would send those emails in, they would buy a mala based on how they want to feel and who they want to become. Mm. So if your intention is love and you buy a rose quartz mala, what I, what I believe that happens is you start meditating on it and it becomes this cyclical journey where you're setting this intention. You're starting to live it. Okay. Now you're starting to embody it and now you can let it go and set your next intention. So it becomes this physical representation of our journey and our trend and our transitions through all of the qualities that we want to call on. I don't believe, you know, actually I'll say it this way. I believe we already have love and we already have patience. We already have all of those qualities. But if we have this reminder, this tool, a very beautiful, beautiful tool that we can wear through the day that reminds us of that, it just calls it forward. So I already am patient. I already am love. Analytically, I know that, but the integration into my body and my daily living is a very different thing. You know, one of my teachers said to me, the longest journey we take is from our head to our heart. And I've always loved that because especially 
being a meditation teacher and being a coach, especially to high performers, there's these questions and analytically we can know what's correct, but are we living it? It, It's two different things. Just like we're in a relationship that maybe everyone else sees isn't great, but we haven't had that moment where like it's time. So it's that integration and that embodiment between our head knowing something and our body knowing something. So being able to have a manifested physical thing around us, it reminds us, I just think that's incredibly beautiful and incredibly powerful. It really is because it's almost like a subconscious thing. Like it's not, you're not even realizing that it's that, but it, it is like every time you look at it, it is a reminder of whatever the thing is that you're working on, which is, is so important. And one of the things that really resonated with me that you, you just said is like, you're like, you know, you don't have to have a new workout set to go work out. But I was thinking about this this morning when I was sharing my meditation practice. Um, it was like, there are days that you are just really resistant and having something to, to just like make it a little more light and make it a little bit more fun and almost like to pull you. I was talking about my, like, like these spirit cards that I use some days. It's like having those little things or even the meditation cushion that I have that's from you guys. It's like three years old and I love it so much. Um, is just, it's a nice reminder. It's like, I have these comforting things. I can light a candle. I can, you know, use my crystals. I can have these things that are making it fun to kind of bring me into it on the days that I don't really feel like doing it. Um, and one of the things you also said was like, it makes like your meditation practice makes you like less reactive, more patient. Um, for somebody who is like, resistant to meditation. Cause I have a lot of people like, I don't need that. I don't need it. And it's like, no, you have like these crazy hormonal imbalances. That's like high cortisol or like, you know, whatever the thing is. And it's like you being stressed all day is a, that's a product of that. And so beyond, you know, patience for me, it makes me less reactive with my kids. It makes me more connected to him. Like, what are the things that you have noticed from having a consistent practice? Uh, I think that's such a beautiful question. I, and that kind of ties into the ROI. So I'll go into that. Yes, please. But for myself, I have noticed a lot more Mm self-compassion. So I'm just starting to re-listen to um, The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer, which I absolutely adore this book. And I'm so lucky. I did a really wonderful retreat in Sonoma a few weeks ago where we really dove into We Are Not Our Thoughts and how to differentiate who we are from our thoughts. Mm. So I would say, oh, I think a stat is we have a 60,000 thoughts in a day, 90% of them are negative and 80% of them are from yesterday. <laughs> so I look at meditation, which That's is bad. what an incredible, what an incredible thing to realize. So if you're just looking at it this way, you know, that whole, why I was nervous about meditation was I can't sit there for 30 minutes with no thoughts. The way I teach now is what if you reframe meditation as an opportunity to change some of those thoughts so tomorrow they're not as negative and the next day and the next day and it compounds. So we're practicing self-compassion. So when our mind starts to wander because our mind will wander, when we judge ourselves, we have we have two options when we realize our mind wandered. Oh my God, I'm the worst meditator. I, I, I'm so bad because I knew I shouldn't have done it. Or, okay, my mind wandered, just come back. Okay, come back, my love. Come back, my love. I mean, we're nice to ourselves because that happens like 200 times in 10 minutes. So in those 10 minutes, if we look at that as I have 200 chances to practice self-judgment or self-compassion, because then that turns into our habits tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So that for me, I have noticed when my inner critic and my negative self-talk comes up, I can notice it so much quicker and treat it with so much more love and kindness. And that might sound a bit woo woo and like, oh, that must be nice. But there's, there is a moment now, almost a pause when I say something really harsh to myself. I'm like, oh, that's not true. Okay. Yeah. Or just, I just kind of let it go. And not every time, not every time, because sometimes I get hooked into it and I get carried away with it. But more often than not, I don't get carried away with it. So that self-compassion and that self-love is I would say the most incredible outcome that I've had in my practice. Also being, you know, less reactive, being more patient, more understanding. I think I feel more connected to my body. I feel more aligned with my purpose and my values. And 
I can tell sooner when something or someone or an experience or a place is not for me. Like I, I just mm. feel more dropped in and maybe in my twenties or younger, I'd say yes to things or just be eager and not want to have boundaries. I have way better boundaries now. There, there's so many, there's so many things there. I think, you know, that leads to the ROI question. I teach CMOs from around the world and I was teaching at Oxford a few months ago and at NYU and working with a premiership team in England, a football team, realizing the, the benefits of meditation for high performers, whether you're an athlete or a CEO or CMO or whatever, a C-suite head of a company, meditation helps us make decisions faster because yeah. we learn to trust ourselves. Yeah. We learn when to navigate and how to navigate and trust that inner voice. Mm. We learn how to build trust within ourselves and trust within our teams. We learn how to work under pressure. Like there's so many benefits. When we think about the ROI of meditation and work, it's, well, how, how, how many hours are you operating or losing a week because of stress or anxiety? How does that impact you? How does that impact your team? How does that impact? You know, there, there's so many non-woo-woo, super tangible things that meditation can impact in a really positive way in performance in relationships and self-love. And when I'm teaching, you know, the foundation of it is when we're better connected to ourselves, we can better connect to others. Yes. We can better lead. We can better show up. We can better build community. We can better, you know, be in partnership. So it's the self-connection impacts every other connection that we have. Yes. A hundred percent. When you get hired by business executives, what are usually their goals when they hire you? What are they looking to accomplish and how does that potentially? Yeah. Because that's like the other side of your business, right? You're, you're selling like this beautiful product line, yeah. but then you're also coaching people. Practitioner. And so you're coaching really like high level people. And so I think that another way to even frame his question is like, what are the most common struggles almost that you see that these people are coming to you with? Yeah. And how does that differ? Like, you know, what what was their initial goal and, and how does that potentially differ from the end result or maybe their, you know, their, their mental framework around it in terms of what they thought they were going to get out of it. And then I'm sure there's a flurry of other, um, you know, advantages that maybe they didn't realize. Yeah. I mean, I love this question so much because I think people, you know, when you think about high performers and C-suites and athletes, they're like, they're all just people. They're all trying to figure it out. And they're all, they're all trying to find self-connection. And in my experience, most, and I'm generalizing here, but a lot of people that I work with at that level have sacrificed a huge part of their journey to get where they are. And only now are they looking back and going, oh shit, I really should have thought about self-care and self-love or purpose or values or Very what success common. means to me. Yeah. 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 And so I think there's this, what I, what I notice is, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to generalize here. I'm not going to name any companies or names, but the, nobody wants to feel silly or, or stupid or like too woo woo when they're amongst their peers or in a room of other high performers. So they'll ask really tactical, pragmatic questions. Like what, what is the ROI on meditation? Like I said earlier, that's like the go-to question. I got asked recently, why isn't meditation more masculine? I'm like, you know, I work with, you know, I'm, I've been meeting with like the NBA and the Olympics and premiership league. Like first off, not that those you need to be masculine to meditate, but what is this perception that self-connection is feminine? What is, what is the block there? What is the perception? I think that the first step for me for a lot of this is allowing them to feel safe and realize self-connection doesn't mean you're weak. It's actually incredibly powerful, but the content that I teach, the way I teach, it's the same that I teach anybody. You don't have to be a high performer for me to work with you. It's the exact same. It's just the framing to help people feel safe in the situation they're in. And oftentimes in those C-suite situations, they're a little bit more left brain. So maybe the word intuition won't resonate. Maybe it's, you know, decisive decision-making. And instead of like learning to trust yourself, it's psychological safety. Like it's, it's the same thing, but it's allowing them to realize, you know, letting their back down, letting their guard down so they can actually settle into it. Mm. And that's why when I teach, I teach meditation out the gate, like almost right away. I, I was doing a meditation training in India years ago and I kept asking the teacher, can you explain this? Can you explain this? Can you explain this? And finally she just stopped the class. She's like, Ashley, just do the fucking meditation. You're wasting everyone's time because you want to understand it so deeply. And that's not the point. That's not the purpose. Mm-hmm. So now I just teach the meditation right away. 
to remove any of the analytical stuff that kicks up yeah. because we start to block ourselves with too many questions. And I, if I had to said, okay, guys, I'm going to take you through a visualization to meet your future self. And you're all going to be in tears by the end of it. All of the executives be like, you're insane. So instead I lead them through it. And after they go, oh, oh yeah, we get it now. So it's, it's an experience. I can't explain the experience until I've taken them through it because they start to get nervous. We all, I mean, it's human nature to get nervous. Am I going to be the odd person out that cries? Am I the odd person out that's going to experience this? Am I, am I the only one that's going to think this? And I think it just takes a couple of, it takes some framework to allow people to feel safe and drop in because in, in the most human level, we're all seeking the exact same thing and they just need permission to get there. Absolutely. So it's the invitation. It's the permission. It's the framing. I love that. So I want to switch gears a little bit because as I said at the beginning, you've scaled this massive business um, that's two pronged and you're a true leader in the wellness space. And so in scaling over these last 12 years, has there been bumps along the way? Have there been challenges? Talk to us a little bit about that and like what that's looked like for you. Yeah, there are always so many challenges. <laughs> and I think that that's another thing my meditation practice has helped me with is- I was gonna ask that. <laughs> yeah, I used to react way differently than I do now. And I have a very deep, trust now. I have a, maybe a stronger anchoring or rooting. I still get riled up some days. And I still will have, you know, maybe a, a mini meltdown here and there, but I would say, you know, to repeat what I shared earlier, that I was my biggest block for so, so many years. Yes. And I did a meditation. I'll never forget in, in the early years of starting Mala, when I was on the couch every night crying and thinking people are going to know I'm an imposter. I had this meditation and this voice said to me, like, you're being so selfish by playing small. You're robbing so many people. And it was, again, not out of ego that I could be the savior or the person that enlightens someone. But my fear was keeping me so small. And I felt safe in my fear because it's all that I knew. Mm. And now whenever I up level, it is so scary. And I know what's happening. Yeah. And now instead of trying to do it alone, I have mentors, I have coaches, I have advisors, but I became very, very clear getting a coach or an advisor that is just financially successful actually isn't what I want. I want someone that's values aligned, someone that has built a life and a career where they have a family that they love, that they value the things that I value, like time and adventure and freedom, self-love, family love, all of these qualities, because it's, I don't want to say it's easy to be successful and not have those things. I think that all of those things take a lot of work and a lot of hustle, and a lot of sacrifice, but I became very clear. I want to surround myself with people who have built a life with, within the value framework that I value. And so now when I have those moments of fear and uncertainty, um, I'm much better at not doing it alone. Yeah. And they still happen a lot. They still happen a lot. I think going into the coaching and the teaching and this side, was a really, really, really scary pivot for me. It, it wasn't, it was no longer me selling a really beautiful mala or cushion, which I absolutely love our products. I have gone to every factory I've ever worked with in Bali and India and Nepal. Like I, this, this is so meaningful to me. And I've touched every single product, chosen every single color. My entire apartment is a reflection of every product we've created. I love it so dearly. And no one knew it was me. It is so much more vulnerable and scary to now yeah. have it be me. And I'm still learning. I gave my first keynote two weeks ago in front of a thousand people. And I'm learning to embrace that and not only get over the fear that I am now at the forefront, but realizing, oh, this is my purpose. Yeah. And I asked one of my teachers years ago, you know, we romanticized this path of discovering our purpose. What happens when you know your purpose, but you're too scared to do it? Because I've known for years, this is what I meant to do. And I never hear about that part. <laughs> I only hear about the discover your purpose and do it. I'm like, but I don't want to because it scares <laughs> the life out of me. And he framed it as, you know, you've, you've got these clothes on that you've put on your whole life, this shield, this armor, it's how people see you. You're, you're changing clothes, you're changing who you are. And that opens you to vulnerability, that opens you to this nakedness mm. where people can judge you, they yeah. can leave you, they can abandon you, they can make fun of you. But people can also 
love you for this new version of yourself. And it was a very, very, very vulnerable transition for me. And I think the lead up to it, I scared myself more than totally. I, I needed to. But yeah. now as soon as I did it, I was like, oh yeah, why did I wait so long? Of course this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This brings me so much joy and I love it. And I can impact so much change in people's lives that this is, this is my purpose. But that transition into it, I mean, I'm, I'm skating over a lot of therapy and a lot of coaching. And I took intuition training. I hired a psycho, psychoanalytical therapist on Mondays, intuition coach on Wednesday, Wednesdays, Buddhist retreats, this like every, everything. And really I had to just do it. And I think a lot of us glorify the work, but actually a lot of it's avoided. It's like asking questions. So I was avoiding stepping into my purpose by doing as much healing as I could. And maybe it's what I needed to do. Whatever. I'm happy I did it. It's so true though. Like living on your edge. Like I think that we all love being comfortable. We like as humans, we, we love being comfortable, but living on your edge and living in that place of like a little bit of discomfort. It's like, you know, that that's actually good for you because that's where the growth is. Um, but so many people avoid the heck out of it. And so, um, I think you sharing that is almost like giving people permission to be like, Hey, like maybe I should like dive into what I know is right, but I've just been so uncomfortable to kind of rip off the bandaid. And so, um, culture doesn't deal with failure very well. Right. It rewards, you know, success and, and, uh, and punishes failure. I think that like one of the things that you've probably like one of the things that I'm working on in, in scaling my business. And I think that we can apply this just for like so many different listeners. I'm sure you, you've kind of gone through this is, is surrender and like surrendering a little bit to, you know, what's right for that timeline and like, you know, not trying to force things so much. Um, and again, like people could apply that to, if you're trying to have a child and like surrendering to God's will, like, so if you're thinking about that, like surrender and like letting go of control. And I, again, I know that like through all of the work that you just talked about with the therapist and everything, I'm sure that's work that you've done. Can you give any tangible advice for that? Oh, I think that's really beautiful. That's so beautiful. Surrendering and letting go. I think the concept and the feeling and the intention of that, I think we all crave and it's so mm. much harder to actually embody and live it. Right. And I would say like the first thing that comes up to me is, you know, the story of the serendipity of how I met this woman on the airplane and started the business. And I've had a lot of people say to me, I wish that would fall into my lap. Like it fell into your lap. Mm. And I understand what that means. And what they don't see is 12 years of sacrifice and hustle and uncertainty and fear and tears and blocks and loans and HR-ish, like everything. But what that actually required in that moment was a trust and a leap that, hey, maybe this person sat beside me for a reason. Mm. Maybe, maybe there's something here, but I'm smart enough to figure it out if there's not you know, I can get another job because I quit my career to do this. You know, I quit my career, went back to my career and then quit to scale Mala that there, there was a surrender and a letting go, but really it was a trust in something so much bigger than me. And I have to constantly remind myself that there is something bigger than me. And if that's God, if that's the universe, if that's spirit, cosmos, whatever language resonates with you, I do believe that there is something bigger than us. Yeah. And when I think about that in my decision-making, I was really uncertain of, is this intuition or fear in our guidance? And I get that question a lot. And the way I look at it is intuition speaks to us with love and with kindness and fear speaks to us with judgment. Cause it can be really hard to be like, Oh, do I let go? Do I surrender? Do I do this? Do I trust this person? Yeah. And, and I lean, I, I lean into trust almost every time. And I've been burned absolutely a ton. I still choose trust, but there's, you know, the serendipity of my life in the past six months, sitting beside a COO of a football team and then going to teach at Oxford, going to like, all of this has been serendipity of something so much bigger than me. But what I did was I said, yes. And so often we say no, because we don't trust. 
And we often think must be nice or it's not the right time. I could never, I have a mortgage. I have a kid, I have this. And we block ourselves from the abundance. And to say yes is a surrender. And to say yes is a letting go. I know it's not always possible in everyone's life, yeah. but I, I would always encourage what would it look like to say yes and, and to trust to trust something and but follow following your heart and your gut and your soul and mm-hmm. knowing maybe this is a serendipitous moment. Yeah. I think they happen a lot. So I've heard you say on another podcast that you create from all up based on things you've been through. Like you have enough, <laughs> a, like a line that's called I am enough. So yeah. That said, can you tell us more about like your creative process with bringing your products to life? Oh, yeah. I, so that whole I'm enough was because that was when I didn't feel like I was enough. Yeah. That that was sparked from crying a lot. Um, and, and beautifully, beautifully realizing others, I can't remember what this quote is, but it's oftentimes it's our shame that creates the most vulnerable and authentic human connections. And so I was pretty ashamed and embarrassed to even admit that I wasn't feeling enough. And once we started creating that and realizing, oh, we all have a level of that feeling not enoughness in some capacity, it's so beautiful to see which words resonate with people and why and what, you know, that tugs on in their soul. It's so, it's so special. The the meditation cushions and the crystals, I so believe my home is a reflection of me and how my mind is like, just like when your desk is really messy, you know, for me when my desk is messy, it's usually because I'm a little bit anxious or disorganized. So being able to have a space around me that is calm and grounding helps me feel more calm and grounded. It's the meditation cushions. You know, I was just using a cushion off my bed and just thought I really want to sit on a cushion like this. And when I went to India, everybody laughed at me, like, just sit on the ground. Like we do here. <laughs> like We don't all have really open hips in North America. We need a cushion to sit on. And so that was, that was a really fun exploration for a few months. And, and the crystals, you know, so much of this, even the content, because for me recording meditations and, you know, teaching programs is so important right now. We're working on a 21 days of joy uh, for June and being able to spark joy is so important to me. So this concept that meditation has to be this really serious thing. You know, I've had beautiful meditations where I weep and I cry and I have these incredible reflections or I see visions and hear voices. Meditation can also be joyful and really profoundly light and playful and take us back to this childlike version of ourselves. Mm. And that to me is something that's coming up more as I teach people in these positions of power, what meditation is and, and undoing this paradigm of what they think it is. Like it can be playful. It can be movement. It can be joy. It can be all of these feelings. It doesn't have to be super serious. So I would say a lot of it is the journey that I'm on, but very much reflective of, you know, especially through COVID, the team meetings were very much, what do you think people need right now? Yeah. How, how do we think people are collectively feeling and how can we help them with that? I, I love that you brought that up because you, um, in COVID, you made a, a cushion for kids right? Um, which I think is so sweet. And like we at our house, um, have multiple, multiple right now. Last night we read monster meditation. Like we are really trying to teach him that like, if you're feeling a big feeling, we have a three-year-old just to give you context. Um, you know, you can take some deep breaths and it can kind of start to calm that feeling down. Um, and, or if you like this book that we read last night is like, you know, if you're feeling anxious or like you can't fall asleep, you can do some breaths and relax each part of your body. And that will help you to relax and get ready for sleep. And so, um, what do you think is the most helpful thing that we can do for the kids and the mental health mm. in the next generation? Cause I feel like there are so many things that actually make it even harder on them. Like we were reading an mm. article that Chad found a couple of days ago. That was like this thing on that, like TikTok is now like pushing, accounts that, you know, are, are, it's not police body image. Basically they created fake accounts guising as 13 year olds and it uh, algorithmically pushed them towards eating disorders, suicide, those types of things. It's It's unsubstantiated though. I want to make sure that's no. Yeah. But it's still, if it's true, that's awful. Yeah. And so I, I just think that like, 
our, our young generation already is, has it need meditation more than ever harder off than we do. And so I would love to hear what your thoughts are on how we're going to make that, or we can make that possible. I, I would say what I do find quite beautiful is that it's already normalized for kids. Yeah. Whereas when I'm, true. when I'm working with these, I, I keep referring to like the C-suite high performers, anybody, anybody, they, it's so new to them that that first step is taking apart the shame or the judgment that they feel for themselves to be doing meditation in the first place, because it's such a weird hippie woo thing for so many people that for that to be normalized as a child, how profound is that? Mm. How profound that this language and experience with vulnerability and connection to self is already an experience that kids have had. I think that is such a step ahead. And I think that, that, that shame, you know, I had someone reach out to me, this beautiful man. And he's like, I'm, I'm in my fifties. I'm a suburban dad. And I don't know what I need. I think I just need help, but I don't even know what I need. So the words weren't there, but he's like, I feel that I need help from you. But by the end of it, oh my gosh, his language, it was so beautiful. He understood what his values were and his purpose and what success meant and how to, how to verbalize love and communication. And to be able to learn those tools as a kid and not feel silly for asking for help, like what a gift. So I don't know how to, to solve those things, but I do think that there is an incredible advantage of that language being normalized without it being shameful. And to, to celebrate vulnerability and self-connection is unbelievable. I think. I love that you shifted the perspective on that because we can look at it as this negative, like the negatives that they have, but we can also look at it as, you know, they do have, like, I talked to my son about it. No one ever talked to me about it. So I think that's that's the solution. Like we're in a world of technology. It's only going to get more innovative. It's going to be around. Of course, there's mechanisms that you can teach your kid across the board, but that's, that's what it comes down to. It's the, the, the world is inherently more stressful, more anxiety inducing the the pressure is higher. All the things are, are, Mm -hmm. are what they are now versus, you know, there were however 50, et cetera, years ago. It's really just a matter of giving them the tools to, to navigate that, that, that to me is, is the answer. You're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna stop technology. Humans are going to connect through devices, whether fortunately or unfortunately, whatever side you're on, but that's a reality. And so, you know, it's the tools and strategies in my opinion. Totally. Totally. I agree with that. And like a funny little addition to that is I teach the same tactics to kids as I do adults and, you know, box breathing, let's just say the, the resistance, I get from adults and the questions I get from adults on box breathing versus a child being able to just drop into it. How like that's so telling to me that the block is just mental and it's not wanting to look silly or do it wrong. And we were so obsessed with being right, which is why I try to go directly into it instead of how do we remove the left brain? Let's get out of that analytical and let's just lean into the practice. And kids are just so open to leaning into it. It's so cool. Yeah. kids don't feel shame they don't you know <laughs> yeah. it, it, they're so beautiful in that way they're so innocent so our yeah. you know we have a three-year-old getting him to have any sequence of attention is is very challenging just out of curiosity is there any tell us about how you you know not get a kid to meditate but get him somewhat interested and get him you know conditioned to doing some of the things at such a young age maybe three five well before she even answers i'll i'll i will say that like when we read those books and like he's like it locked into that that it's like we're like we say like inhale and he does it and then yeah no he'll do that and he does it so i think it's starting small but i would love to hear your opinion on it i mean again i'll say it's the exact same thing teaching adults to get them to hold focus for more than 30 seconds is it's impossible so (laughs) <laughs> not impossible, but it's a, it's a task. So, yeah. yeah, and I'm not trying to say that to be funny. It It is true. No, it's I, true. I would say the way I'd answer that is the same. I would answer it to adults is if you're really having a hard time sitting, it's finding the meditation that works for you. So oftentimes if we have a lot of anxiety in our bodies, I'll recommend people put their hand on their heart and on their tummy. So they feel more connected to their body. So yes, get back into their body. I've I really like the practice if you really can't sit still to just do a bit of movement first. So maybe it's just jumping or shaking mm-hmm. and just shaking for 30 seconds and then sitting in meditation because then you've released a bit of energy from yourself. 
guided meditations. What a beautiful gift to sit and surrender to someone telling what to do for 30 seconds or six minutes. And it's the same with kids and with adults being able to just relax into something. Mm. So, you know, I, for me, I, it took me a really long time to be able to listen to my body, to realize I can do a different type of meditation. So I love my beads. I still use them, you know, a few days a week at least, but then there's days like today where I'm like, wow, I really want to go out and listen to, you know, this beautiful book about meditation. And then I'll sit down under a tree and listen to a Joe Dispenza meditation. I really like that. And then there's days where but I, I have enough of a habit built where I can be now a little bit less structured with it. But I think having the structure, but figuring out, you know, if the kid doesn't like sitting crisscross applesauce, they can sit on their knees. If they don't like sitting on their knees, they can lay down. If they don't yeah. like laying down, they can sit on a chair. Like it's, it's finding out the difference between resistance. If I don't want to do it versus I'm super duper uncomfortable. And this just doesn't work for me right now. So there's like this fine line. And I think you, you know, you know, your, your kid best, anybody else listening will know their kids best. And we know the difference between like, I don't want to do it versus like, oh, this actually doesn't feel good. Cause if it doesn't yeah. feel good, if you don't like how you're sitting, what do you, you're not going to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> like anybody that's uncomfortable meditations, you're like, mm, that wasn't very joyful for my body. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's a, a bit of a long answer. That's not exact, but there's little hacks that you can do mm -hmm. that yeah. make it easier. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that was, I think that's really helpful for anyone who's trying to like, cause it is, it, like, it's been shown, like there's research now to show that like, it is helpful even for kids who have behavioral stuff who have learning stuff. Like there's so many things that it's helpful for. So if you're trying to get your kid into it, it's like, Hey, what do you know about your kid and how can you give them the best? They like scientifically yeah. proven it. Some things are still for debate, but yeah. like they've done brain scans where you're it's meditating. Incredible. I mean, it, there's no yeah. argument at this point. It's very good for you. So what advice do you have? If anything that we didn't cover for our listeners, um, any like last tidbits that you want them to know, and then let us know where I know where we can find you, but let our listeners know <laughs> where they can find you. Any last pieces of advice? I would say actually one question I get asked a lot is what apps do I use and why do I use them? I yeah. would say find someone's voice that you like and just listen to that person. Yes. And that's such a simple thing, Yeah, but it's like when you find a Peloton instructor you like, or a yoga teacher that you love, you go back to their classes over and over again. It really is that simple. If you like someone's voice, you're going to like them a lot more and then you're going to show up more. So finding, finding a voice or a message that you connect to, if that's headspace, that's calm, if that's insight timer, we have a ton of free meditations. Like there's, it's just connecting to the person I think gets us to come back. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, having a space in your home, if, if you can do so, you know, my apartment in New York is the size of a shoebox, and I still have a little cushion in the corner. I don't have to think again because we have so many decisions to make in a day. The decision fatigue, I just want to go straight to my cushion. I want to go straight to the place. So if you even pull a cushion off your couch and sit on the ground and have a little space for yourself, I think it's pretty beautiful to have a little you know, safe space, sacred space, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then where they could find us. Well, Mala Collective. Um, and then my Instagram is Ashley underscore underscore Ray, but we have a lot of free content there. And also we love when people message us stories about Malas or questions. So please reach out. We're a small team and we answer everybody. Love that. Thank you so much for your time today. We know you're a busy lady and we are very grateful for all of the knowledge that you just dropped. And so we'll link everything for everyone in the show notes where they can, you know, find you and find your malas because they are absolutely beautiful and they will help you to be more consistent with your practice. Yeah. So thank you, Ashley. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.